Success gives us options to do more. But what about when those options become overwhelming? On this episode, the author of Essentialism, Greg McEwen, on how to see what really matters. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 469. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversation. How do you decide what really matters? Maybe even more importantly, how do you see what really matters? Today's guest is an expert at helping people to figure out what's essential. I'm so glad to welcome to the show today, Greg McEwen. He has dedicated his career to discovering why some people and teams break through to the next level and others don't. He is the author of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. His book is frequently listed as the number one time management book on Amazon and challenges the core assumptions about achievement to get to the essence of what really drives success. His writing has appeared in or been covered by the New York Times, Fast Company, Fortune, Huffington Post, and many others. He's among the most popular bloggers for the Harvard Business Review and LinkedIn Influencers Group, averaging a million views a month. Greg, I'm so glad to welcome you to the show. Dave, it's such a pleasure to be with you. I am, first of all, grateful for your work because I read Essentialism about six years ago when it first came out, and it really helped me to make some major transitions in my professional work to get more effective. So thank you for that. And as I was thinking about that time in my professional journey, I was thinking about the quote that you highlight from Jim Collins in your work of him warning about the undisciplined pursuit of more. Tell me about what you see in that quote. Well, I observed a pattern working with individuals and with teams and then organizations at large, which is that when they were in their early stages, Silicon Valley companies would be in a stage of clarity. They would know what was essential and what wasn't and would be able to pursue it. That led to success, which produced an increase of options and opportunities, which all sounds like the right problem to have unless it leads to what Jim Collins has called, as you mentioned, the undisciplined pursuit of more, which is where you uh, suddenly have so many different things uh, coming your way that you get pulled in a million different directions. You become really distracted and you can start to plateau in your progress or fail altogether. And so this is the success paradox that uh, in a way gave birth to essentialism. And you make the point in your work that success is actually kind of a poor teacher, isn't it? Yes, it can actually become a catalyst for failure because it teaches you that you know you can't be wrong or that what you need to do is just more of what you've been doing in the past or that you were the explanation for your past success. And so none of that is particularly helpful, especially if you're in a very turbulent environment, if you're in a time of volatility and uncertainty and unpredictability. So in this kind of environment, what has led to success, all of those things can actually be an impediment to you being able to break through to the next level of success. What is it that ends up being such an impediment 
for people who've had a lot of success previously? Well, there's lots of answers to that, but we could just summarize one problem, which is the Kodak problem, where, you know, as you'll know, that they didn't just miss the digital photography revolution, they invented it and then still couldn't adapt quickly enough to the circumstances that they were in. So that's an extraordinary error. And not because they weren't intelligent or capable or curious people, but because the challenge is to get your old thinking out of you. And their old thinking was still being rewarded. Keep doing traditional film. That's where the money is. That's what's you know, produced all of this success. That's what produced this brand recognition all over the world. That's what's given you dominance in the market. I mean, they are being rewarded. And even at the same time as this new threat is coming in and they were part of innovating that, they couldn't get all the old thinking out quickly enough. So other people that didn't have the baggage of success who weren't being taught by that past success, who were learning from the current environment, were able to innovate faster, learn faster, and therefore progress faster. I suppose it's easy for us to look at an example like Kodak and think, wow, you know, they really missed the boat. They should have known. I wouldn't make that same mistake. Our organization wouldn't make that same mistake. And yet I'm struck by the reality that you and I and most of the people listening are people who have had a lot of success in our careers by every traditional measure, education, career position, financially. And so we are not only very possibly able to fall in that pattern, we're probably even more likely than a lot of other demographics of people to fall into that same trap as Kodak did. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. And I think there's two ways to to approach that problem. One would be trying to sort of pare down all of that baggage, you know, try to remove piece by piece. That's option A. And I'm going to get to option B in a second, but I want to illustrate it using a story. So I just interviewed just this week, one of the product managers that was a part of a company that was purchased by Apple right at the time when DVD burning was first a thing. It was not yet introduced into the mass market. So if you wanted to burn DVDs, you might be paying sort of $70,000, this enormous amount. And it's just for like just a very tiny market of professional users. And so th- this manager who I was speaking with, Mike Evangelist, yep, that's his real name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he was a part of this company that was trying to produce a more affordable solution, say, let's say $5,000. So it would be software that was, you know, you'd still have to be a professional, but it would be more accessible. And so they've taken now this original product and they've reduced it now to, if you can imagine, a thousand page user manual. That's the simplified version. So then in the midst of all of this, Apple gets wind of what they're doing and that company gets bought by Apple. And he gives them a challenge. He says, look, we're trying to create something that we could even release with our upper end Macs as standard. So it's simplified further. And so they create something that they think is going to be great, or they, they, at least they have drafted you know, versions of what it would look like. They have the meeting with Steve. Steve comes into it and he, he sort of looks at all what they have and he, he goes up to the whiteboard. You may have heard this part of the story and he draws the 
rectangle up there. He says, this is what we're going to build. You're going to take your files, you're going to drag it there, and you're going to press one button that says burn. That's what we're going to build. Mike, when he heard that, was really like so surprised by it, so shocked by it, really. And the reason he was shocked, what he, was, what he told me, he said, the thing I learned was that we were coming at the problem exactly wrong. He said, we were coming still on this, what I mentioned at the beginning of this, version A. Let's take what we have and let's pare it down. Let's pare it back. Thousand page manual, let's go down. He said, what we were going to provide, we were really proud of and was way simpler than what had been done before. He said, but Steve came at exactly the opposite angle. What he saw was that we needed to have, you know, start with zero and say, what are the minimum number of steps necessary in order to achieve the objective? And so I think that option B is what we need to do routinely in our lives is to start at zero start fresh. Imagine that we were you know, trying to achieve an objective with none of the steps that we've had in the past, with none of what we think we know. Let's begin again in our current reality. You went to school and got a degree in journalism, and you make the point in essentialism that in every set of facts, something essential is hidden. And a good journalist knows that finding it involves exploring those pieces of information and figuring out the relationship between them. That strikes me as something that is really hard for those of us who have not really developed that practice. Like a good journalist, it's not just about regurgitating the facts. It's about finding the point. When you teach people how to start doing that, where is it you invite them to start? Well, first of all, there's a terrific story about this from Nora Ephron, who you'll remember wrote the screenplays for uh, Silkwood, Sleepless in Seattle, When Harry Met Sally, all of these sorts of things. Yeah, uh, She's an Academy Award nominated uh, writer for that stuff. Extremely good in telling the essence of a story. Uh, but before she was known for that, she got her start in journalism and her journalism career began in her Journalism 101 class in Beverly Hills High School. Charlie Sims was the teacher. And they were trying, it was the first day in class, and he's trying to explain what a lead is, the who, when, what of a piece. And so he gives them all of this information. And he says, you're going to sit there, the typewriters at their desk. And he says, Here's, you're going to write, I'm going to give you the facts. You're going to try and summarize this in the lead. And he says, uh, Kenneth Peters, the principal of Beverly Hills High School, announced today that the entire high school faculty, faculty will uh, travel to Sacramento next Thursday for a colloquium in new teaching methods among the speakers will be Dr. Maynard Hutchings, California governor, Edmund Brown, and so on. It gets all these facts. And the students just hammer away on their manual typewriters to try and keep up with the teacher's pace. You know, they handed in their written leads and each attempted to summarize the facts as succinctly as possible. Some are saying, well, Margaret Mead, Maynard, Hutchings and Governor Brown will address the faculty on whatever. Another one says next Thursday, the high school faculty will and so on. And then in an absolutely brilliant moment, he sets all of these aside and he says the lead to the story is there will be no school on Thursday. Uh. And that's, to me, such a prescient skill to be able to not be so lost in information that we miss knowledge, and now I'm quoting T.S. Eliot, and not 
miss the knowledge so much that we miss the wisdom. And our job, again, especially in these odd times in which we uh, find ourselves, these times of commotion, is to get really good at pausing, looking at the big picture, connecting the dots, and to try and find the real news of what's going on. You teach that essentialists listen for what is not being explicitly stated. They read between the lines. And that a lot of times we're listening for what's just the loudest message. But essentialists are able to really listen for the signal that's in the noise. Yes, I was once chatting with Thomas Friedman at an event in China. And part of that same trip, some of the people I was there with had gone to lunch with him. And at the lunch, he seemed almost not to be paying attention to people. He wasn't being rude, but he wasn't sort of, he wasn't just involved in every part of the conversation, the life of the lunch or anything. But then every so often, someone would say something and he would turn to them and he'd say, Oh, tell me what you just said. Will you explain that to me? Will you give me more about that? And so actually, he was being a really powerful listener. He was filtering for the fascinating, for the surprising, for the unexpected, for something that didn't fit with the normal messaging. And then he would go deep on that. So he was listening very broadly. And I do find that essentialists do this almost universally, is that they are listening very broadly. They are actually exploring more broadly than a non-essentialist. But then they are committing to fewer things. They're looking for that well, let's say it this way, they're looking for the diamond in the mine, whereas a non-essentialist feels like they're in a, a coal mine and their job is just to get as much out as possible. The essentialist understands that most of the information is trivial, but amongst it, there's something that really matters. And their job is to discern what that thing is and to then go after it, because that's far more valuable than all the rest of the trivial noise. When I put down your book after reading it six years ago, I had this immediate thought of, wow, this makes so much sense. I need to do this better. And what you just said makes so much sense. And then the practice of it was so much harder and took me so much longer. And I'm curious when you see people who move beyond that success tendency a lot of us have where we get tied in our success, and they start to be able to do what Friedman did, what you teach, of being able to listen for the signals, to be able to start to find the lead in the midst of the facts. What are the places that work for people to start? Well, I think you should start where it's easy. Just as, a, as an important aside, there's an assumption in what you said based on your experience, but there still is an assumption that essentialism is hard. And you'd be excused for having that idea because I've heard it from lots of people and I myself held that assumption. But actually, that's the one biggest thing I've learned is a fallacy since writing Essentialism. Oh, is, interesting. Is that it doesn't have to be. Non-essentialism is the hard thing. And non-essentialism doesn't work. It's not based in truth. It's a fallacy. It's a lie. And it approximates the idea that says, look, everything's important. Everything's equally important. You should try and be doing all of it. I mean, this is just not even close, doesn't even approximate truth. And so actually, essentialism is easier. And if essentialism feels harder, it's because we're doing it like a non-essentialist would. 
So we get the ideas of essentialism, but we still practice it like a non-essentialist. So we try to go big on everything all at once. We try and think we have to be perfect at it to even make a beginning, those kinds of things. And so what I believe and have spent now a considerable amount of time uh, working on is how do you make it easier? How do you start easy? So just for this, I mean, one of the things I would recommend, given that we're using the metaphor of a journalist, is to keep a journal. You know, journal and journalists share the same uh, root uh, meaning, of course, and for straightforward reasons. And so to be a journalist, get a journal. But don't go at it like a non-essentialist would. A non-essentialist would, and and many people have done this, uh, they say, oh, I'm so inspired, I'm going to start a journal. And the first day they go get the book and they and they write down three pages long. It's an essay, a veritable essay of their thoughts and what's going on and ideas. And, and it's quite satisfying, but it's also quite exhausting. And they haven't made way, f- you know, space for it in their calendar yet. Uh, so that means that day two comes along and they've got to make up for the hours they just spent on day one getting this thing, you know, writing the first entry. Well, day two, they don't have that time. So they put it off. Well, yeah, I can't do it. Tomorrow, I'll do it. I'll make it up tomorrow. Well, t- the next day, they've got two hours now to make up for it because they've got to yesterday and today's. And you know, they give up almost before they've begun. The essentialist approach would be to write you know, no more than five sentences a day and no less than one sentence. And to do that every day. So your commitment is, is like a lifelong commitment, but to a tiny amount. And one of the ways in which uh, I, I came to feel so strongly about this approach is that when one of my grandfathers died, um, my Jewish grandfather in New York, I went to help sort through his things and prepare for you know, his services and so on. And I realized that what he'd left behind was nothing. You know, so much of what he'd done in his life and when he'd done it was just with him. He took it with him. And I contrast that with the experience I had when my other grandfather was close to uh, passing away. I went and stayed with him for a few days in London. And he gave me a copy of one book, a journal, in which he'd written a line or two every two or three days for 50 years. Wow. And to me, that's what I'm saying is that you've got to go tiny and small and easy so that you can keep doing it over a long period of time. And so essentialism isn't a theme of the week. It isn't a theme of the month. It isn't, oh, we're going to do this instantly. No, it's do a few things, the things that really matter, a tiny amount, less than you feel like doing, less than you're able to do, so that you can keep doing it consistently over weeks, months, years, decades. That distinction is so helpful. And as I think back to the things where essentialism has felt hard to me is I've made big changes, big shifts. And if I think back and reflect on the things where essentialism has seemed light and the right move and joyful, it's been smaller things done consistently over time, two or three principles done consistently, this podcast being one example of that. And so it, 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 what you just said really, really resonates with me, just in my own experience as well, too. Well, I was curious when you said this a moment ago that essentialism had impacted you. Tell me about how it went with this podcast. I, I'm starting my own podcast, as you know, the Essentialism Podcast, and I'm curious about how you got started and when. Was that connected to reading Essentialism? 
it was before I read Essentialism, but somehow I knew when I started. I only had an hour or two a week to work on the show because I was working full-time and teaching and doing a whole bunch of other things. <laughs> Evidence earlier conversation about when you're successful, you end up doing more and more of it. That's right. So when I started, I only had an hour or two a week. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do three things and I'm going to do them as well as I can and consistently. And one of them was, we're going to have good content on the podcast every single week. The second was, it will be consistent and it will air every Monday. And the third was, we'll have good audio quality. And that was it. There was no website. There was no email list. There was no, I mean, we literally had it as a feed on the, on a category on our consulting site. You couldn't find the show. The artwork was horrible. <laughs> I'll post it in this episode for those who are curious what it used to look like years ago. But I did those three things and I did it consistently for now going on nine years. And those three things have not changed. Yeah, I love that story because first of all, it's just three things. And the advantage of that is that you can remember them. Number two, it's it told you a lot about what you wouldn't be focused on and where you wouldn't get pulled into, at least at first. And this is the idea is that in the early days, you've got to make things really easy. Sometimes I think about this as the courage to be rubbish, that up front, you have to be willing to simplify, do things easier so that you can even get moving. And then over time, you can increase your standards if you want to. You can increase what you're handling because you're more competent and capable. But over the longevity, it should feel like about the same effort. You're trying to get about the same amount of effort at the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. Yes, you, you can get better. Your, your, your work can become more exceptional over time. It's a bit like writing. So writing at first, you know, you, everything I've ever written starts poorly. It starts rubbish. And you have to be willing to be rubbish. And then it's a little less rubbish. And then a little less rubbish after that. And eventually, it's, uh, okay, that's okay now. And then it's, oh, it's not too bad. And eventually, oh, it's good. And what you want eventually is great. And then maybe you can get to the point where something is even exceptional. But all the time, you have to remember to start with standards that allow you to be in the game, be in the arena at all. Captures my journey perfectly. It's exactly why I keep those oldest episodes still up and aired, because I want people who go back to see how mediocre some of that was at the beginning. But the standards have stayed exactly the same. It's just I've bet gotten better at it over the years. But it, it, mm -hmm. it lines up exactly with what you just said. And you know, I'm curious for the person who takes your invitation and starts writing a few sentences a day and does that consistently, how do they then start to illuminate where the lead is? Well, let me tell you how I try to approach this. So I am taken with the idea of, of writing what I'm thankful for. That's not a new idea or a new suggestion, but that's what I write down. And so at first I was writing, you know, no more than just a few lines that I've described. I've kept that pretty consistently now for, I would say more than nine years. I've barely missed a day. And once a week, I will create a gratitude list from the week. So I review the week and I'm now trying to say, okay, what are the, the biggest things that I'm grateful for? And as much as I enjoy the daily check-in and this gratitude thing, and I, I find it very helpful for my own mental health and for the positivity of that experience, 
it's the once a week experience that is that's even better. And actually, the research behind gratitude supports that that the once a week uh, gratitude list is stronger. And I think it's because you can see you're connecting more data together, and you go, "Wow, look at that! Look at what's been accomplished over this one week's period." And so, I, I suggest people do that. And then once every quarter, they should be holding a personal quarterly offsite in which. They then get to review. For me, I get through about a whole journal in that period of time. And so I get a chance at the end of each journal to review all of it and to try and make a summary again of the the main things I'm grateful for. Now, what we want in life isn't just to find a lead in general. We don't want to find just news in general. What we want to do is to find what the news is in our own life. And this process I've just described, I think is, is an effective way for doing that. Because you find at the end of 90 days or a little less each week, a little less each day, that things are better than you think. And you've also learned what's working. And you've also learned, well, what are my assets here? What's the opportunity here? What can I build on here? And so this lens, I think, is a shortcut, a hack to finding the real news. You know, not like the headline you read out of media sources where they emphasize the negative. Uh, in, in your own life, what you're trying to do is find the thing that's working now that you can build on. And that's, I think, a path to figuring out what the news is. We've talked on the show before about the importance of solitude, and I'm really struck by your example of taking that day every 90 days, once a quarter, to stop and reflect. What does that process look like for you? And I'm also curious, what then comes out of that the very next day? Well, I co-created a class at the Stanford Design School called Designing Life, essentially, in which we created a series of exercises and, and ways to do this, what you're describing. And for years, people have been saying, oh, well, we'd like to see some of that and have access to that. But for the first time, I've just was invited by Skillshare to create a, a class to give insight specifically to what you're saying. The class is called Simple Productivity. And, and it goes through exercises that somebody, even just in 45 minutes, can really get some concrete ways to of what someone could do every 90 days. In fact, I think that class is something someone could use every 90 days to really filter out the static filter out the non-essentials and make sure that they're grounded again, each personal quarterly offsite. For me, the output is quite simple. It's a page or two at first of the main things that have been going right over that period, the, the, the major wins, the things that you can build on. And so then from there, I'm trying to say, okay, what's the, therefore, what's next? What would the next important goals be to build on this? And I find that this is a more accelerated way of living than just either randomly setting goals or even just looking at what's not going right and trying to fix it. I think it's a really powerful, causative, generative approach to designing your life. Positive emotions that are generated from gratitude do more than just feel good. They generate positive future action and results, as Barbara Fredrickson captures well in her broaden and build theory. I know um, people are 
thinking also about some of the other stakeholders in their lives, the, the, their colleagues, their management team, the, their family members, of course. How do those different relationships inform that practice, either the journaling itself or what comes out of it or deciding what's next? Or is it a process of really deciding that for yourself and then considering that? Well, I think that one of the ways in which what we're talking about today applies to a person's team is that most people are in a sort of gratitude deficit disorder, that most people, especially at work, research is strong around this, and, and especially in a, in a work environment, are uh, taken for granted. Like you think, oh, there's no point in, in saying thank you to people. That's their job. You don't need to, you know, they're professionals. They don't need this. And, but in fact, catching people doing the right thing, starting every meeting with the question, what is going right? is a great way to quickly discern what is essential, what's working, and so therefore what to build on. In fact, I would liken this, I don't know if you've done fly fishing before, but- No, I haven't. Well, me either, actually. But- uh, (laughs) Good, we'll learn together. (laughs) But I I am told, I am told by those that are uh, pros at this, that a hack for fly fishing is to wear polarized sunglasses because the way that polarized works, it blocks out light vertically. So it shuts off the light at just the right angle to take the glare off the water. And so in practical terms, what that means is that you can see under the water. And that means you can see the fish under the water. And so it's a brilliant little thing. And that's what this kind of gratitude does, is it helps you to see what is already there, but was previously invisible. And so here are all of these good things going on on our teams, all of these good things, even in our environment today, which is, as we, as we know, chaotic and, and so on. There's so much good going on. And regardless, even if there was, even if 90% of this stuff wasn't good, you're still going to make more progress by focusing on the 10% that is than focusing on the things that you lack. And in truth, what I've experienced in my life in almost all circumstances, in all circumstances, even the hardest experience or the worst times, what would seem to be the worst times is that this lens, this way of thinking reveals what is hidden. You can see not only what matters, but what is also what matters that is going right. What assets are here? What strengths are here? What can I build on here so that we can actually breakthrough to the next level. Greg McEwen is the author of the book Essentialism and the host of the podcast by the same name. Greg, thanks so much for your time. I'll second the practice of a 90-day review. I have been doing that with some level of consistency over the last two to three years now. And even though I haven't been perfectly consistent on that, Boy, has it made a difference from before I was doing it at all. It's a wonderful checkpoint to continue the process of really seeing what's most important. If that is a practice you may dive into, several other episodes that will help support you on doing that well. One of them is episode 184, Getting Things Done with David Allen. David is the founder of the Getting Things Done methodology, the book by the same name, and is probably one of the seminal models that helps so many of us be productive in our work 
and has certainly helped Bonnie and I so much over the years to really be able to process what's happening each day and also decide on what's most important. It's a great compliment to essentialism. And episode 184, David, talks about the model and answers questions from our listening audience. So that's a great compliment to help support you on making that next step. Also recommended is episode 233, How to Make Deep Work Happen with Cal Newport. Of course, one of the reasons that we have a practice of getting better at being essential in our work and finding what's most important is so that we can then zero in on the things that are the most important work. And a lot of times it is that deep work. It's that finding that hour or two a day to really be able to focus, to get in depth of the things that are most important for us and the people around us and for our organizations. Cal Newport has a wonderful model. Episode 233 is a great starting point for you if you like I used to often and still do find myself being pulled in lots of different directions, responding to email, attending meetings, but not necessarily getting into that space of doing deep, meaningful work. Episode 233 is a great starting point for you. Also recommended is episode 337, Six Tactics for Extraordinary Performance. And Morton Hansen was my guest on that episode. His research at Berkeley has uncovered the practice of how to get better at changing behavior. He studied many folks in organizations in how they really make the shift to getting better. And one of the key findings that he talks about in that episode is the practice of spending five to 10 minutes a day of working on a behavior change, not 30 minutes, not an hour, five or 10 minutes. You heard that same principle from Greg today. It's the same invitation I make to our Academy members when they're working on their 90-day commitments. Find five or 10 minutes a day that you can begin a new practice and that then gets you down the journey of creating momentum. And you start to see the patterns. You start to discover things you haven't seen before. Episode 337 is a great starting point for that. And then finally, recommended is episode 417, Finding Joy Through Intentional Choices. On that episode, Bonnie and I talked about all the things we don't do. <laughs> that's, that's how we frame that conversation. And so many of you reached out to us and said how helpful that was of not hearing what we do, but hearing where we've made intentional choices as a couple, as a family, and professionally to set aside many things in order to focus on the things that are essential. Episode 417 is where to go for that. All of those, of course, you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website, and you can activate your free membership by going over to coachingforleaders.com. That'll give you access to the entire library since 2011, searchable by topic. One of those topics is productivity. Another one is personal leadership. This episode will be filed under both of those. You can discover many other episodes that are related to that. In addition, you'll also get access to my weekly leadership guides that come every Wednesday with the key points from every episode we air, including also some of the most important finds that I've discovered this week that'll be beneficial to you in your ongoing leadership development. It also includes all the downloads for the books that I've reviewed, Essentialism, of course, one of them, and the download of the highlights from the book that I've captured will be included in this episode as well, plus all of the other book notes inside the free membership library. You can activate that by going over to coachingforleaders.com and setting up your free membership. Next week, I'm glad to welcome to the show Alex Osterwalder. He is the inventor of the Business Model Canvas, and he's going to be joining me to teach us how to build an invincible company. Don't miss that conversation. 
Have a fabulous week and see you back on Monday. Take care.